Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Bumgarner, and I got to sit down with Eric Huffman. Eric is a pastor at the Story Church in Houston. Uh, he has a very interesting story, which I've actually linked to uh, in the notes for this episode. Definitely going to want to listen in. We talk about uh, just um, orthodoxy and uh, progressive faith, uh, conservative faith, and uh, you know, kind of where our culture is headed, what that means for discipleship and uh, all sorts of interesting things. Definitely check it out. Uh, Give us a like, rate and subscribe, uh, share with your friends as always. And uh, let's jump into this episode with Eric Huffman. everyone and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. This is your host Kyle Bumgarner and I am here with Eric Huffman. Eric is the pastor of the Story Church in Houston, Texas and we're just going to talk a little bit today about uh, uh, his journey through um, all ranges of Christianity. So Eric, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks Kyle, it's good to be here. So Eric, to start the podcast, can you give us a brief overview of your spiritual and theological journey? Uh, And just a precursor for folks, Eric has a very interesting story, um, and I'm excited for y'all to hear it. So no, no pressure or anything, but I got to deliver pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I was uh, I was born and raised in the church, uh, Bible Belt, Um, not as hardcore as some Bible Belt kids. I was Methodist, so um methodist bible belt it's a little bit like um southern baptist everywhere else uh, so <laughs> right. it's uh still very a very pious upbringing i'd say a very faith centric upbringing our whole life revolved around the church uh we were at church um you know many days a week at least three or four days a week every week and um when i was in middle school my father left his uh, full-time job and, and went into full-time ministry um, and, and went to seminary during that time. And so I'm also kind of a, a hybrid preacher's kid. Oh. And um, so that was my whole life growing up. I loved church. All my friendships, all my social life was built around church. And uh, I'd still say today uh, that was the biggest force outside my own sort of immediate family was the biggest force uh, in my in in terms of my upbringing and and my character formation. And I'm grateful beyond measure for that. Um, I I guess it all changed uh, my my big pivot moment. My first one was in college. And this is not atypical. I mean, I hear this story a lot, the deconversion story in college, um, where a well-intentioned just... uh, good-natured Christian kid goes off to some secular campus and is uh, is met with kinds of doubts and questions that he or she is not uh, prepared to handle. Where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, it was Centenary College of, okay. uh, in Shreveport. It's actually a Methodist school, but only <laughs> only in a very loose affiliation. Right. It was, it's like it was a Duke's a very, Methodist school? Yeah, it was a yeah. very secular kind of culture, and especially... <laughs> ironically, in the religion department, um, where I really ran into questions about the origins of Christianity, about the uh, biblical origins, and about Jesus himself. That led me to begin deconstructing the upbringing, the, the faith that I was raised with, 
and I really didn't do any kind of, I wasn't a very critical thinker, I don't think. I, I just, I, I was surrounded by the smartest people I'd ever known, I thought. And they all seemed very convinced about the things they were saying uh, in contrast to my Christian upbringing. And I felt stupid for being a Christian. Um, I felt ridiculous. I was, uh, I was privy to conversations about me, um, like kind of around the corner conversations that, that I still remember to this day. That's how they shaped me. It's 20 years ago, but, um, but I still remember things being said about me because I was this simple-minded Christian kid. And I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be an intellectual. And so I remember the day that I renounced my uh, Christian faith. Uh, I continued for uh, the next several years to call myself a Christian, although my worldview was, I was definitely not a Christian. I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like to be a Christian, Jesus has to be God. And I can definitively say that Jesus was not uh, God or my God um, to me then. And for 13 years, I still lived around the church and, and I led churches um, because I ended up going to a very liberal seminary up in Kansas City. And so I still was able to sort of sneak my way through an ordination process in the Midwest and in the United Methodist Church, um, really just based on my own, I guess, um, charisma and my own kind of uh, social justice passion that many in the denomination were, uh, were really high on. And so um, that's what got me through the ordination process and it put me in positions of authority. And frankly, I didn't belong in those positions, but I ended up in those positions and uh, led various kinds of ministries for 13 years. I don't know how many people I led astray during that time. I don't like to, to, to linger on those thoughts. It'll take me down some dark roads um, because I taught some pretty, some pretty bad heretical ideas back in the day. Um, in 2013, after 13 years of wandering, I found myself in the Holy Land by a, a strange uh, coincidence, so to speak, which I don't believe it was a coincidence now, but I ended up in the Holy Land where I had this uh, overwhelming experience with Jesus, with, uh, with God himself in Capernaum of all places, where uh, I was overcome by the Holy Spirit, I believe, and, and I I confessed for the first time since my deconversion that it's all real and Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And I realized in the aftermath of that experience that I was going to have to figure out what to do with the Bible that I had spent the last 13 years uh, mostly criticizing and uh, apologizing for. So um, it was a, a lengthy kind of reconversion <laughs> process. Uh, uh, lost a lot of friends going from the extreme left radical uh, social justice warrior that I was into this new evangelicalism that I was discovering. And um, that was in 2013. And, and in the seven plus years since, it's been sort of a rebuilding process. I've had the opportunity to start a new church in Houston, Texas, and um, it's been extraordinary and wonderful. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Well, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, so there was there were, I mean I just I have so many questions and so many things that we could you know kind of even just from that we could spend the rest of our time talking about but when I, I remember when I first read your story um and and really when I whenever I kind of interact with and and kind of see more 
more of the quote-unquote progressive elements of of christian faith um and you know like people define that in so many different ways but i think one of the biggest questions i had was why did you continue to hold the label of christian when you know kind of by your own admission you were like i don't believe jesus is god i don't believe the bible's the word of god i don't think jesus rose from the dead like <clears throat> you have all of these things that are just like so central and it's kind of like well, if you don't really believe in any of that, why would you even endeavor to take on so much of the historical baggage of Christianity? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a complicated answer, but I guess the easiest <clears throat> way to describe it is uh, I felt like Christianity, the church and Jesus needed to be rescued from evangelicals mm. um, and reclaimed as the uh, social justice movement that it was intended to be to begin with. Mm. Um, and so throughout those years, you know, I was still very proud of some of the work that I was doing. And I, you know, I guess some of the people around me and I did some good things, you know, soup kitchens and homeless shelters. And, and we did other kinds of social activism and marches and things um, that were, I mean, uh, they, we were very passionate. Uh, but I, uh, I understand your, your question. I just think at the end of the day, I saw Christianity in the church as a vehicle for my politics. Mm. Um, and I saw the potential for influence in the church um, more so than any other way, uh, any other path afforded me. And, and that's a very selfish answer, but I think that's the frame of mind I was in. Um, and it's all I knew. Also, the church was really all I knew. And so I think all those things combined sort of led me to just stick around the church, even though I'm ashamed about uh, most of what I taught people back then. Yeah, it's, that's a, that's a very, that's helpful to hear you say that because I, it, it almost makes me think like, okay, now, so there might be people that are thinking like, Christianity was never supposed to be this like religion where this man was deified, like Jesus was essentially just this, like this model of like what, what we're supposed to do as humans, which is to like, to, to serve, you know, serve the poor, serve the marginalized and do these things, but there's a perversion of it. And so like the, the progressive side of it is we're fighting this perversion, which is the idea of like deity and religion and, you know, and, and dogma and all those things. So that, that definitely, and uh you know white male patriarchy and right and, uh the I mean, there i would say that i think part of what my story has helped me to see as i look back is um part of the reason guys like me were able to do and say what we do and say like the the prior me the past me right mm -hmm. um is because the true sort of evangelical Orthodox Church has left too many openings in the in the social sort of conversation, and we have um, we have not asserted ourselves into um, some of these social justice type conversations out of fear of being social justice activist types, and I think that's to the detriment of the church when we're not out in the forefront leading. We we leave gaps, we leave openings for people to speak for us or even to speak against us. Um, and, uh, and I think that is, um, I think that's a weakness and a, and a sort of a blind spot for many of us, uh, as Orthodox Christians today. Yeah. And it's, 
it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, so as you're, uh, as you're kind of, you know, looking back at, at, you know, some of the things that you taught and, and believed and kind of where you were at, you know, you mentioned that there were some things that you did that were good, you know, like you're, you're, you know, you're serving the poor and you're having soup kitchens. And I think the, the trip you were talking about the Holy land, you were, you were going to Palestine basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And doing some work there. And so, and, and, and to your point, I think, you know, one of the biggest critiques that a lot of people have for the quote unquote evangelical church in America is that it just is so far removed from, from the sphere of, um, of justice in the here and now. And so it's like, I guess I'm wondering, how did you balance that critique of like, well, now that I'm, I'm not really kind of in the full on social justice, we're, I'm going to push this as hard as I can. But I also recognize that this is a legitimate shortcoming that the evangelical church had. So how did you find the, the balance between those things of like holding on to good things from your previous faith, but also leaning into some of the, the robust um, new things that you were learning in your evangelical faith? Yeah. You mean after my reconversion? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, I mean, everything is uh, it, post 2013, everything for me is funneled through the Bible. And so the, the, the word of God is sort of the lead horse on my on my carriage here, you know, and, and rather than just something I bring along to proof text, you know, liberals and conservatives alike will proof text. And I used to do that, like, you know, uh, as good as anyone back when I wasn't really a believer, I would proof text evangelicals under the table. and. Um, you know, with my liberal proof texts, and anyone can, as they say, prove anything they want using one verse here or there, and uh, and yet, when you put your full faith in Jesus, and understand the whole of Scripture to be uh, divinely inspired and, and inerrant in um, in its in in the story that it tells, I, I think the whole of it becomes your driver. And now, I guess the things that I used to put. First, like before, I would say social justice was my lead horse. Um, you know, those kinds of, uh, it was a works righteousness. Look, liberal Christianity is very works righteousness focused, even though, you know, they talk a lot about grace. It's really about outdoing, um, outdoing yourself and others in works to prove, you know, how good or how woke or whatever you are. And um, I think that was what drove me before. And now it's, uh, it's still, I still see the need for that, but it is out of a response to the uh, amazing uh, grace of God that, that I wanna do those things rather than out of this desperate sense to prove how good I am um, or, or how, you know, how awesome or, or woke or, or liberal or whatever I am. Um, I think the, the driver there is just God. He has saved me from myself, my sin, my shame. Like he is, he reclaimed me even though he didn't have to. And his mercy is so abundant. Like how could I not do these things? Mm. How could I not love my neighbor or, or serve my brother? You know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's more of a shift in mindset and or more of a shift in like the, the center from which all of those things are flowing. Yeah, for sure. And as opposed to like, you know, I, I think that here's the deal. I think my witness now is uh, to my new evangelical friends is just 
one of awareness to them. I think, I think I've seen the other side of this and I know how evangelicals are perceived. And I know that um, we have work to do to break some of those, those stereotypes and perceptions. And I feel like, I don't know if my story can help, um, can help open some eyes uh, to, to how we need to, how we need to change as Christians in the 21st century, in the age of Trump, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, thinking about your, your story, what were some ways that, uh, that anger and, and church hurt kind of played in influencing your beliefs? Like you talked a little bit about, um, you know, your journey being at, um, at college and hearing people talk about you and, and, and wanting to, um, you know, wanting to, to be perceived as intelligent and smart and, and winsome. And then also, I think in your, in your story, you talked a little bit about, um, just kind of being very angry and being very frustrated and kind of just constantly trying to like tear um, a lot of things down. And I, and from my own perspective, I just, I see that all the time. I mean, you know, obviously the, you know, more conservative evangelical, like white evangelicals get like a ton of flack for that. Um, but I mean, progressives can, can be just as nasty, if not more nasty in the way that they do things. So I'm wondering how that's, how much of this sort of like, rage and um you know those those things of like the church uh, like not living up to its to its standard um kind of influence your beliefs in any way i think the first uh moment i felt angry at christians was just i felt like uh i had been lied to mm. i felt like when it came to how the bible came together or whether the bible was you know literally true or what all you know i just felt like i had been duped and so I had this resentment. It wasn't really anger. It was just resentment toward um, Christians, the Christians who had raised me in that time of my life. But what was interesting is in the reconversion <laughs> in 2013, when I started to do my own homework and research, I realized that so many of the things that I've been taught in uh, by secular academics uh, was, was every bit as, and more so as uh, misguided as what I'd learned, you know, in my Bible Belt upbringing. Um, you know, the idea that that Jesus was just one of many myths, uh, the copycat myth theory that I bought into and the idea that um, that Christmas was just this pagan holiday that, uh, you know, and there's there's so many pagan roots to Christianity and the idea of the Bible going through multiple edits and things like that. And um, it's like I, telephone. All, all, that the one? whole thing. Man. And I realized in uh, doing research that there were so many falsehoods <coughs> and half truths that I'd been told by these supposedly really trustworthy and smart academic professionals that uh, that my bitterness and resentment shifted toward them. And I'm still doing <laughs> that, honestly, I still, <laughs> so, um, sometimes I feel like my congregation is looking at me preaching going, I wonder who he's fighting against. Like, who is he talking to? Right now? <laughs> We're like, who are you mad at? Professors from 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, but I still deal with the, with a little bit of, of that, I guess. But, you know, I think, I think, a little bit of uh, bitterness or anger or whatever, as long as you're angry at the right things, <laughs> uh, can be a good motivation. Um, and so I am, I am, I continue to be partly motivated by, by this anger about uh, lies that people have told and lies have been perpetrated and perpetuated by Christians or, or Christian adjacent people 
um, to mislead and misguide people about specifically about the Bible. Uh, that's why I wrote the, the scripture in the skeptic book um, is because I feel like there's just a lot that needs to get cleared up about the, the history of the Bible and, and the trustworthiness of scripture. Um, because, you know, you just hear so many people apologizing for the Bible or making excuses for it or being ashamed of it. And they call themselves, you know, Christians or pastors or whatever. In my denomination, at least, I see it all the time. Um, you know, people will start something, a sermon or a, a teaching with, well, Paul probably didn't write this, but if he did, we have to apologize for his misogyny and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's no way to start a Bible study. I mean, if you're as a Christian leader, it's, uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, we have to cover all this up. I'm just saying we have to tell the truth about the whole thing here like Paul if 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 anything he was a feminist not a misogynist like there's this there's this crazy sort of cover-up um and doublespeak that that I perceived on uh in progressive Christian circles that you know I don't mean to demonize um although there there are some I think some demonic forces at work in some in some cases but generally speaking what what angers me is that most people in progressive Christian congregations have no idea they're being misled. They have no idea that, uh, that, that there's, uh, you know, this other way of looking at scripture or this other way of thinking about the Bible. Um, they just are, you know, they're sweethearts, frankly, like the average Methodist person in a, in a progressive, you know, Midwestern uh, congregation is, you know, one of the most salt of the earth, most beautiful people you'll ever meet. But they're being, um, I think, misled by false prophets and, and false teachers that are uh, that that are happy to um, acquire the power and influence that this kind of hidden knowledge gives them. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think it's uh, it's unfortunate to say the least. And that's kind of what fires me up. Yeah, it. One of the things that, and maybe you can relate to this. One of the things that has been challenging for me has been um acknowledging the the hurt and the damage that has been done by by conservative white evangelical churches um and and particularly acknowledging it within the personal stories of people who have like very um you know poisonous views of those um of those churches so it's, you know, acknowledging that there was some serious harm and wrongdoing and things that are done, but then at the same time being like, hey, I don't know that this is necessarily a good foundation or justification for you to embrace things that don't, A, just don't make any sense. You know what I mean? Or kind of like you were saying where, because I, I, I say that to say like, I had like a, a very similar experience of like, I'm in college, I'm learning all these new things, you know, meeting new people who have different perspectives and all the Christians around me just weren't in the same place. And so like, it's this isolating feeling of like, oh, I'm the only one who is asking the real questions and figuring these things out. And I'm, I'm just smart and all these other Christians are just stupid and what, what's going on here? And, and it's like, hey, how do you, I don't know how do you balance like the real pain and hurt that comes from that but also being like you don't have to embrace like because you've been hurt by half truths and pain and suffering and false teaching you don't have to embrace more false teaching like you need the truth well and 
Orthodox Christianity is the only worldview that has a solution. I mean, when we talk about a, a doctrine of sin, uh, you know, that's something that, that's missing from most progressive uh, Christianity, I think. Uh, I know that was true for me, is that I, I had a doctrine of sin, but it was always structural, mm -hmm. systemic sin. It was never like a personal, you know, sin that required repentance. Um, it was only after my, my conversion in Capernaum that I was able to deal with my own sin and repent. And it, it, it never occurred to me how little in my, all my years in progressive Christianity, how little I was ever called out on sin or how little I called anyone else except for white evangelical conservative Christians out on sin. And, and yet that is the beginning of a beautiful repentance. And anything short of that is robbing ourselves of that repentance moment. And so I, I think I get what you're saying, um, but I think it's possible to get into such a, uh, a, a an apologetic and, and sorrowful state of mind that we lose the muscle of our theology, um, which is where the, the power really is. Like, yes, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry and Christians have really messed up. But listen, let's not fall for the, you know, ad hominem fallacy and, and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are sinners that are, you know, that have made some mistakes, but it doesn't change the, the validity of the message. Let's, let's look at this message and weigh it on its own merits rather than, you know, based on the character of the, of the messengers. Um, because you, could, you can throw out any and every worldview that's ever you know i mean civil rights movement um abolition like like the the bearers of those messages were flawed and if we're going to throw out every you know worldview based on the character of the messenger uh then we'll find ourselves you know agnostic all of us um uh, because there will be nothing to believe in but we know that there's something true and good and i just think the the truest and highest good is is found in jesus and and giving your whole life to him rather than in some of these the games i used to play as a progressive political driven sort of christian for sure for sure it's a good word what uh what do you make of of the trends and I, I think in some ways you were kind of like on the on the early end of this but i feel like recently in particular there's been a, a very large trend of of so-called deconstruction of you know, people being like, hey, I was raised in a conservative church. You know, I realized that what I believed was really wrong. And now I'm in, you know, you got people like um, the liturgists or or Joshua Harris or um, uh, the guy, who, uh, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson, like all these people who are just, they they were kind of like in these sort of Christian bubbles, very much in the, in the, in these Christian worlds and have now kind of, you know, been on the, on that journey of, of deconstructing their faith into, into something different. So what, what do you kind of make of, of this as like a trend and as a, as a phenomenon? Yeah. Well, the cynic in me would say like many of these cases feel like celebrities or semi-celebrities who um, may be getting some uh, renewed attention by public publicly, you know, deconverting, deconstructing. Yeah. 
Um, but I know that every every story is is different, right? So I don't want to I don't want to paint everyone with that same brush. But but several of the stories that I followed um, have a tinge of uh, narcissism. It feels like that only comes with celebrity, um, and so I, I am a little slow to to give those stories much credence. But I do understand the question and, and the the feeling behind it. I think part of it is. Um, there is there is a lack of I think intellectual depth um, in some conservative Christian circles, a lack of um, willingness, or maybe um, maybe a, a lack of uh, emphasis on discipleship that um, you know puts what puts people's minds in the mix, and so it's about feelings and. Um, and just blind faith that gets you through um, most seasons of life. But then uh, when you, when it really hits the fan and gets hard and you're presented with some real suffering or, um, or, or it hurts, you know, life hurts. Uh, it's very hard to keep believing if your faith is built on feelings and blind faith. Um, and so I think, uh, one of the, I mean, one of the most eye-opening things for me was coming back to Christianity and doing my own reading of historical and present-day Christian Orthodox authors, speakers, writers, um, preachers, who are some of the deepest thinkers and uh, philosophers that I had never been exposed to in all my years as a Christian. I had no idea that many of the world's, you know, smartest writers ever have been Orthodox Christians. Um, you know, I never read C.S. Lewis in seminary, for goodness sake. I mean, how crazy is that? But, but I wonder how many of our evangelical churches are actually digging into stuff like Lewis or even, you know, more contemporary um examples of that where you're actually you know chewing the cud together and and really um uh embracing mystery and um allowing for vulnerability within the church rather than just saying you know anytime there's doubt or a struggle or a question it's like oh well i guess that that brings our meeting to a close you know let's uh let's talk about that next time and then we never uh, do you know uh, there's just a, i think there's a fear sometimes of deeper thinking and deeper conversation that that would be the antidote to a lot of the deconversion stories that i've heard yeah it it's definitely um it's definitely something that i've noticed where or you know you 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 know, you laughed about it where it's like, you know, okay, like we're, we're moving on or, or I feel like a lot of times the response is to offer like, like a very thin apologetic, like, you know, we'll be like, oh, like go watch this video or go watch these, you know, or like this speaker or something like that, which, you know, I, I think a lot of those guys do good work, but it just, a lot of times, like they offer like very simple cut and dry answers that yeah. really, in in the end, just aren't really good answers. And and I think, like, to your point, I think a lot more people would be helped by an honest wrestling with difficult questions rather than just somebody being like, "Here's my proof text for you know why why hell is eternal conscious torment," or "Here's my proof text for why um, 
why the Canaanite genocide was um, ordained by God or something like that. You know, I feel like why the Bible's true, right? Well, the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. Well, I'm asking why the Bible's true. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like that kind of thing I see all the time, especially since I've started this church in Houston. And, and I think, I think what would really help, like you're saying is an honest wrestling, but even a, a willingness to sit with some momentary ambiguity. Right. Yeah. Uh, and not have to answer every question and trust the Holy Spirit, you know, in our in our communal wrestling to to speak and guide over time. And, right. and you know, the, the deeper our doubts, if we're honestly wrestling with it, the deeper our doubt, you know, the deeper our faith will be in the aftermath. I, I sincerely believe that. Um, but the problem is so many people who are deep thinkers and doubters by nature are sort of excused from belonging in the church. Like they are, uh, they feel at least it, it marginalized, if not, you know, actually uh, are being shunned. And, uh, and so what happens then is there's no place for them to doubt, uh, uh, to express their doubts within Christian covenant, within Christian mm-hmm. community. So yeah. then what do you do? Well, you take it to Reddit. And mm. game over, like you're an atheist, right? You know, yeah, it's like YouTube, you yeah. no And so, uh, within Christian um, fellowship, I think we need to leave room for more uh, for more questioning, and and also, I think you know that can that can turn toxic too. I understand the fear there, but we have to covenant together, and not just to doubt, you know, Christian stuff, but we have to doubt our doubts too. Okay, maybe some of these assumptions we hear about in the world maybe they should be doubted as well and, and what if you know this what if that and and i think that's where i think i think especially among men but i'm sure women as well i've just seen it more personally with men's groups like that's where some of the magic happens honestly is when men are able to to really talk over uh their doubts and questions without fear of judgment and uh you know and you always have to be sure to bring it back around to jesus um, and not let it go off the rails, but man, there's such power there when men gather around a fire or something and, and talk about the the questions they've been asking. That's that's an interesting point and a dynamic that I hadn't really thought of because I think like you know it's it's commonly repeated wisdom that you know church churches are more often made up of women, um, and there's a part of me that you know as you're saying that I was like thinking that, you know, as men, a lot of times, like we're, we're kind of conditioned to be, you know, sure and confident and leaders and like any sort of like, quote unquote, like doubt or like unsurety or like we're wavering is kind of discouraged in so many ways. And so it's like, when you have these, these doubts, it's like, it's almost like as a man, you're conditioned to just very quickly, like, okay, like I'm having this doubt it's either I got to find my way back to the Christian faith that I've been taught, or I've got to just completely check the whole thing and just dive hardcore into agnostic humanism or atheism or whatever I find or Buddhism or whatever I think is real. I think that's true for, for a certain brand of, of American male, but I found uh, in as a Methodist in, in the 21st century is that as the more progressive our denomination goes, the less interested men are in participation. Um, and I think part of that is, uh, I, I think part of that is related to what we're talking about because men 
um, enjoy having some ability, some power to, to discuss doubts and, and um, deep questions, even to be, um, even to be cantankerous and contrarian. Yeah, and, no, for uh, sure. In, in, in my experience, left-leaning um, denominations or congregations, while they state uh, uh, openly sort of a value of uh, we agree to disagree on things, there's really not room for disagreement. No. It really is a new kind of fundamentalism where um, I, I think that's the number one reason why men are, are you're hard pressed to find you know, male heavy uh, or, or male driven churches in, in progressive denominations. And I think that's one of the main reasons why. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, given the reality of deconstruction, what, um, and you, you've given some like thoughts toward this, but for you, what, what should our discipleship look like? If we know that like, there are things like Reddit or YouTube, if we know that, you know, men are having a hard time, like expressing honest doubts or, or even women are having a hard time expressing doubts in church and they have, you know, information about like any kind of world that they could possibly imagine right at their fingertips. Um, and they have also, they have access to communities that have gone through their same story of, Hey, I grew up in the conservative church. I, uh, I don't really vibe with it anymore. I'm trying to find something that's more in line with my, my new values. Um, how does that change the way we, we disciple people? And, and for you, what does that look like? Yeah. So I do think that apologetics have to be a part of discipleship more than maybe we've ever imagined before. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to have resources at the ready for people in our discipleship processes. Um, and I mean, you know, intellectual, um, uh, apologetics-based readings, um, uh, articles, links, et cetera, for different kinds of questions and issues that people are wrestling with. Um, I think that we the, the real struggle for congregations and pastors right now is to figure out how low the bar of belonging should be hmm. and how high the bar of leadership should be. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And... Um, and I think that is, uh, I think that is the real conundrum right now. Um, and, and at the story at my church, you know, we have set the bar for belonging very low, um, and the bar for leadership very high. Uh, and that is because we are now living, I think, in a, a post-Christian world, um, if not like more accurately described as a pre-Christian world, which means many if not most of the people we're encountering every day it's not that they've given christianity a look and walked away most of them have no idea what the gospel is um and they might have heard vague references to it on the office or something but they don't really know what the what the gospel is and so in order to get them into christian community where they where they can grow i think belonging is a very important part of that and so we don't require you know doctrinal total doctrinal alignment in order to belong to our community or to get involved in our discipleship processes but if you want to lead a group um, we make sure that you're ready you know and not only that your doctrine is right but you're able to respond to people's questions in ways that lead them further to Jesus instead of away from him and so I think 
uh, I think apologetics are more important than ever. And I think, um, I think leadership is more important than ever in most of our contexts today. Yeah, I, as you were saying that, I just, I thought back to, so I was involved with a, with a ministry when I was in college um, that was, you know, definitely based on evangelism. And I, I kind of thought it now, or I kind of thought it then, and I definitely think it now, but just looking back, I was just so, I was given like the very basics of Christian faith, which I had already had from the time I was like, you know, cause I grew up in, I grew up in the church kind of like you. I, I just, I had those things, but I wasn't given anything else other. They were basically like, this is all you need, which there's, you know, like it, it's tough. Cause it's like, there is a, there is a truth to that. And there is a, there is a realness to that. But at the same time, it was, it, there was, I don't know, there were so many times where I just, I ran into situations or questions or things where, you know, like high school students are, and middle school students are like the best people to check your evangelism because they, they don't care about like trying to please you or make you feel better about yourself <laughs> or, or, you know, like trying to be polite. They're just like, I mean, they'll straight up tell you like, you're an idiot and you're, you're <laughs> your answer doesn't make any sense and you're stupid and you should go renounce your worldview. And like, you know, like they just, they're ruthless. And so there were so many times where I just, I ran into situations where I was just like, I just ended up looking dumb. Cause I, and it wasn't even like I ran into so many kids that were just super smart and intelligent. It was just like, you know, they'd be like, well, how do we know the Bible is true? And I'd say, you know, well, the Bible's true because this, and they'd be like, well, I just Googled that. And here are seven YouTube videos saying why that's wrong. And so let me just parrot their arguments at you. And I right. think like there were just so many things that I just didn't get trained for. So, so to hear you say that, I, I really resonate with, uh, with the need for, for training and discipleship and, and just accountable leadership. I think that's oh, so important. Man. It's exhausting and it's constant. Like I find myself constantly needing to read and, and reread some resources that I've already read and just refresh my knowledge on things and, always be ready for for the questions people ask and in many ways it feels you know exhausting and uh insurmountable but the longer you do it the more you realize there's really like four or five questions people ask in different forms like it really is a a pretty small number of of inquiry lines of inquiry that skeptics and doubters will have about about christianity and it's not as hard as it might seem to be prepared to deal with people, um, you know, meet them where they are. Yeah, definitely. I, I think about like, I think in so many ways, like a lot of the questions and I, and I remember a, a pastor at a church that I used to attend said this in a, in a sermon one time. And I thought it was so true was that he said behind every doubt is, is a feeling of, of pain and suffering, even if, even if the even if the person themselves hasn't personally experienced it, like the question behind, well, if God is good, then why, you know, why are people dying of famine in the Middle East? The, the question behind that question is why, why is this bad thing happening? Yeah. And it's just like, you could take that and that question and apply it to so many, you know, like, why is there racism? Why is there cancer? You know, why, why are LGBTQ people excluded from, you know, uh, behind all of that is, why is there pain? Why are people hurting? Why am I hurting kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Learning to talk to people in those moments is I think the, one of the most important things that pastors and leaders can do is learning to answer questions with questions 
and learning to spot um, Christian or at least monotheistic belief um, in the doubts people have and the doubts they express. Like anytime someone says the world, someone says the word should, like I know they're halfway there already. Like mm -hmm. they already think the world should be a certain way. Well, why? Why do you think the world should be anyway? Right. Well, you know, there's a deep theism there uh, already ingrained. And that's something to work with. You know, that's raw materials. And, uh, and, and in some ways, those people are easier to work with than, than progressive Christians are, in my experience. And, and, you know, I think people that think they're Christians, but they're not, are the hardest ones to actually convince but folks that are just kind of out there wandering from their um you know their soul cycle class to their yoga studio to their you know their uh night out with their friend who does crystals or to whatever like there's so much there's so many people reaching out for the divine in so many different ways right now it's like we don't have to, we're not dealing with a world that's going, moving toward atheism. Like we're dealing with a world that's hungry for God, for something real yeah. and true and ultimate. Mm -hmm. um, but they just look at, at us as Christians, as, as, you know, folks that are in, in uh, certain political parties pocket and, and nothing more and folks that are hypocritically pro-life or what have you, you know, and that kind of thing. And, um, and, and, you know, I think we have so much more to offer um, this world. And, and I think I, I'm, I have a lot of hope in my heart when I look at some of the new churches and, and younger leadership that are that's emerging right now within Christianity um, and some of the new conversations being had. So I think I think some good things are coming. Yeah. How do we how do we change that perspective that so many people have of us. I, I literally just saw an Instagram post where this person was saying, you know, Jesus calls us to be known by our love. And I, I'm fairly confident that if you asked anybody who wasn't a Christian in America, what Christians are known for, they would say they don't, they're anti-vaxxers. They don't want to wear a mask. They think the pandemic is fake. Like they don't, you know, they believe in excluding all these different kinds of people from their services. They don't, um, you know, they don't believe in systemic sin or anything like that. Like that is what Christians are known for. So how do we start to change that, that narrative of what Christians are known for? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we live in a very, uh, I think we live in a very, um, in a culture that, it, that is uh, easily, what do I want to say? We live in a world that, is sensational mm. and we as christians often try to be on anything but sensational and i think sometimes we miss opportunities that would grip the nation if if or at least our our cities our surroundings if we were willing to stick our necks out and just be different. And I saw some churches doing it during the race protests and riots of 2020. Um, and, you know, I, I think that was the kind of moment, cultural moment. I'm not saying, you know, start 
I, I'm not really a uh, hashtag BLM person um, just because of what that what the organization, the political wing of the organization stood for, stands for. But I still think that was an opportunity to build bridges and, uh, and to really build, especially if you're a white church, to reach across town and build a, a lasting bond and relationship with a black church across town. Like that was probably an opportunity missed if, if we didn't take it. Like um, there's so much pain on display in a very public way. Not only would that be meaningful for both churches involved, that would be the kind of thing that would send a message to the world that, hey, maybe maybe not all Christians are like that. Maybe there's something different happening here. Um, and I saw uh, the reason I can speak to that is that there were examples of churches that did that very thing without compromising gospel, uh, you know, the, 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 the gospel itself. Um, by bending the knee to some political agenda, um, <clears throat> right or left. So I think um, we also live in a very political world and, and Christians, evangelical Christians being willing to critique right and left um, without fear of, uh, of you know, getting your teeth kicked in by your evangelical friends or, or your liberal buddies. Um, I think that kind of integrity would speak volumes if we were more uh, uh, more apt to criticize the current president as we were the, the prior one, and and more apt to praise based on whatever policies are being you know promoted, and I think I'll give you an example. So I think I'm in a pretty I think I'm a a fairly uh, orthodox, if not sort of politically conservative person now which is a very strange thing for me to say. <laughs> I years thought I'd say that. But <laughs> where I'm at, I think that's because it's where the Bible has led me to be generally. Yeah. However, you know, when it comes to the issue, an issue like immigration or, uh, or how we handle um, and, and welcome refugees, uh, political policy aside, like whether or not we should be kind and loving and, and hospitable towards strangers, refugees, immigrants, et cetera, that's no question. Biblically speaking, like that is something we should all be able to agree on. Now, you can welcome the refugees and immigrants in your midst with the, all the love of Jesus, while also voting in ways that promote your ideas of what the policy of this country should be. But the question of whether we should love immigrants, whether they have documents or not, in our midst, to me, that's one of those things when evangelicals miss that moment, miss that opportunity, I feel like that's an unforced error. Mm, and, uh, yeah. and it's something that that really is just that's the easiest thing in the world to show our cities our our, our surrounding neighbors that that we are who the bible says we should be and we are who we claim to be people of jesus and, and it's obvious how jesus would love you know the illegals in our midst i would hope it's obvious yeah no that's I, I like the language of unforced error because i i think it's it's like you say like when you get into matters of of, of policy and, and kind of the, the sort of macro view of things, like things are, things are incredibly complex. Like even things that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely somebody who I have to check myself and be like, okay, this is not as easy as it, it seems in my brain. Like, right. it's not just like, you know, let, you know, let everybody in, like we have more than enough, you know, like I'm, I'm just very much like, you know, I, I tend to go more that way when I need to be like, okay, like it's actually way more complex than that. There are things you have to think about and yeah. stuff, but, but I think you're right when it's like, there's a baseline of things 
that a lot of times Christians, they can't even meet that. Yeah. And, and changing the, changing our perspective of, you know, or changing the way that people perceive us would change a lot if we were just even able to like make the layups that we've been, the opportunities that we've been given. Yeah. We're all hypocrites, you know, it's like, Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was on a left leaning uh, progressive Christian quote unquote, uh, I remember just talking about diversity constantly, like diversity and, and tolerance and stuff like that. But, but I've never been in a progressive Christian congregation that was diverse. Mm. Never seen one. Like I've seen, I've seen churches that are now progressive that are diverse, but they started as evangelical churches and their leader had a change of heart along the way or something. But, but the most diverse congregations I've ever, I've ever seen are tend to be conservative evangelical churches that rarely talk about diversity as the goal because diversity is not the goal. Diversity is a natural outpouring of the goal, which is, you know, giving your life to Jesus and bringing the world to him. And, and so in the same way, I feel like sometimes, sometimes we Christians today, evangelical Christians, like we want to, we want to talk about, we, we would rather talk about, uh, the love and grace of Jesus, uh, theoretically, while also talking about, you know, America and, and, and our keeping our borders safe and all this stuff politically. But on the day to day basis, like there's no evidence that we, that, that we believe what we say we believe. Right. And, and it's just, to me, um, I feel like you asked a discipleship question earlier and I feel like many especially older evangelicals are being, but all of us really are being discipled, you know, 24 seven by cable news and social media. And we're being discipled like uh, 24 one <laughs> by Christianity or church, you know, it's like one day sure. a week is, is church day. And then every other day we're inundated with other kinds of, of influences. And I feel like if we're really going to be who Jesus calls us to be, we, that that script needs to flip and we need to be 24 seven, you know, chasing after the heart of Jesus first and, uh, you know, be Americans second, be uh, political or voters or whatever second and, and Christians, people of the word first. Yeah, definitely. So moving towards, you know, kind of wrapping things up a little bit here, I'm curious to know, how, as you started to kind of go through your, your reconversion process, what were some of the conversations like with, with your other progressive Christian siblings and, and how, what wisdom would you give for navigating conversations with our, with our progressive Christian siblings? Yeah. Um, it still feels really fresh, like a fresh wound. It was, it's, it, there's a lot of pain there. A lot of my family is very liberal politically and theologically. Um, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of pain there. I, I still feel like many people who knew the old me would rather, they would rather I had just deconverted from calling myself a Christian than deconverted from my liberalism. Mm. Like it would have made them happier if I had stayed you know, affirming of LGBT marriage and ordination and all that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, left the church, like we would still be close if I had made that move, which is telling, 
you know what I mean? Oh, like, for sure. That's totally telling. And I think if anything, I saw that as an, a painful affirmation of what I, what I suspected to be true, which is that, um, that my God, when I was, when I was on that side of things, my God was not God. My God was, um, myself and some political ideology was my, was my theology. Um, and so, uh, that was the immediate result. I lost some friends and, and some family members and I had some falling out, but I will say that over the years, I've heard from people in my old city in Kansas city. Cause after I had this conversion, I actually felt like I needed to leave mm. the city. I had, I needed a new start. That's when I moved to Houston. Yeah. Um, but I will say over the years, people from those days have reached out to me and said, Hey, I heard your podcast heard your sermon or read this thing that you wrote. And I just wanted you to know that God still used that time in your life. Like I never would have gone to any other church. I never would have given God a second thought um, had it not been for what we were doing together in Kansas city. And it's interesting how God still uses even the most idiotic leaders like I was uh, to keep people in his orbit. Um, and he redeems us even when we're lost. You know, he redeems our work even when it's misguided. That's just how gracious and good he is. Um, but I've had, I've had many conversations with people uh, who knew me at that time and have, you know, they've to varying degrees of success, I guess, uh, we've had fruitful conversations and, and some have just written me off and, and can't believe. They just think, I think they think I, I just got, I got burned out and moved to Texas and became a Texan Republican, whatever. You got red pilled. Yeah. And started uh, listening to Joe Rogan podcast. And, <laughs> right. and, and, and that's, yeah. uh, and that's how they justify or rationalize it. But I've had many fruitful conversations with other people who are, who have grown in similar ways as I have. And they say, you know, I think you're right. I, I see what you mean with this and maybe, you know, uh, maybe I need to give this some thought or whatever. Like, I, I think there are some, there are some good outcomes, but, uh, but overall, I think the takeaway for me is just how gracious and good God is because his mercy for me is uh, he's given me far more mercy than I deserve uh, to have, um, you know, used his name in ways that I've used it in the past. Uh, to have misled and misguided people and to give me another opportunity after all that to plant a church, um, you know, post-conversion like he has. I just, I, I live and walk in that, in that grace and that mercy every day. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's awesome, man. I mean, praise God for that. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So last, last question would be, you know, what would you say to, a mainline or progressive Christian that is, is kind of in the, um, in a place where they're wrestling with their faith and, or even, yeah, uh, let's just stick with a progressive and mainline Christians for now who they're wrestling with their faith and they see, um, you know, they see all of this like sin and unrighteousness around them and, and injustice. And they're just, they're hard charging after social justice and, you know, they're wrestling with how that connects with their faith. What, uh, what would you say to someone like that? Um, well, it depends on who they are, you know, and, and the relationship with them. But generally speaking, um, 
I would ask them to show me what fruit their life is yielding. Like what does the fruit of their life resemble in any way the fruit of the spirit? And, um, you know, in terms of love and joy and peace, I, I just remember being a progressive Christian and feeling so miserable all the time and so angry and up in arms about everything and um, divided in my own heart as well. I had this raging porn problem the whole time I was posing as this social justice pro-women, like, right. you know, yeah. kind of that kind of divided life. It just, it really was depressing. And, and I, I just wonder, I see that in a lot of people who are who are now where I where I once was, and I I wonder if you know a little self examination wouldn't go a long way and say um, examine the fruit of your life and not to get all Doctor Phil, but like how's this worldview working out for you? You know that kind of thing, and and uh, have you have you considered the possibility that neither the political right or the left has a corner on truth, but maybe there's something something beyond that gives us the ability to use words like should and um, to, to think the world um, should be a certain way and to think that there's right and wrong and, and maybe, you know, maybe a, a political platform isn't enough to encompass that reality. And, and if that's the case, then the opposite political platform isn't your enemy either. There's something greater that's your enemy too. And, and so, you know, maybe it's time to ask um, bigger questions than, than just, uh, you know, uh, the questions we, we've been asking as progressives about patriarchy and empire and, and uh, you know, white male power or white supremacy or whatever. Maybe there's something beneath all those questions that's even more important um, to be asking. And, uh, and, and generally, when in conversation with people that have walked in progressive Christianity, the question is, um, are you willing to doubt your doubts about evangelical Christianity? And if so, let's talk about that. What, what doubts that do you have about evangelical Orthodox Christianity are you willing to doubt right now? And that is usually the door to some better conversations. Excellent. Pastor Eric Huffman, thank you so much uh, for your time. This was such an awesome conversation. Um, I think it'll really resonate with a lot of people. And, um, you know, hopefully we hear more stories about people that are, you know, just finding their way back to, to who God is and who Jesus is. Amen. Thanks for the opportunity. Sorry, I, I rambled a lot, but I've got I've got a lot to say. Got Listen, <laughs> I, I host, I host this podcast just so I can ramble. I'm such a verbal processor that I just, I love having the opportunity. Yeah, to, the more to we just, talk, the more I learn. <laughs> so. to just like, yeah. Pontificate on, on stuff like that. And I, I completely forgot. I mean, you, thankfully you brought it up in, um, in the middle as we were talking, but in addition to being a pastor, you're also a writer. So you've written a devotional and then you also have a book coming out. Yeah. Yeah, 40 Days of Doubt is the devotional, um, 40 Days of Doubt, of Doubt, Devotion for the Skeptic. And then I just finished a book that's coming out February the 2nd um, called exciting. Scripture and the Skeptic. Uh, so it's more of a full-length book with a, with a group study at the end of each chapter. 
um, to really reclaim the notion of, of biblical inerrancy in ways that I think you know don't violate uh, our uh, our human capacity for reason uh, and uh, and using our minds. So I'm uh, really excited about about that book releasing. That's awesome, man! Congratulations on that. Thank can, you, thank can people pick it up? Amazon bookstore. Sorry, any... for a second. Yeah, it'll be uh, ebook and, and uh, obviously hard copy as well, and uh, and then there's an audio book that's in the works too. So that's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, uh, and folks, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast, and we will catch you next time on the Orthodoxical Podcast. Mm-hmm.